Hi, listeners. This is Effective Altruism 10 Global Problems, a collection of 10 episodes from the 80,000 Hours podcast designed to bring you up to speed on 10 pressing issues the Effective Altruism community is working to solve. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. This episode is about journalism and the ways that we can hopefully get it more aligned with what matters most. Journalism offers the opportunity to spread important information to a broad audience. And if you want to work on, say, something like biosecurity, but don't feel like your technical skills are the right ones to contribute directly, then helping people understand the problem and, and what can be done about it might be a promising alternative. We always ask for audience questions for upcoming guests, and we never got a bigger response than we did for this episode with Ezra Klein. That's maybe not too surprising, because Ezra is one of the most prominent journalists in the world, and one of the most high-profile people to take the implications of effective altruism really seriously in their own life and, and their own career. Ezra actually reached out to us because he'd been reflecting on how the effective altruist lens on things ought to influence the media coverage that he's involved in producing, and he wanted to share his thoughts on that. As a result, we got into topics like Ezra's model of how journalism ends up talking about less important topics somewhat just by accident, how many hours of news the average person ought to be consuming, where the progressive movement is failing to live up to its own values, and his biggest critiques of the effective altruism community. We also happened to record a video of this one. So if you'd rather watch, uh, you can find a link to that in the associated blog post. All right, without further ado, here's Ezra Klein. Today, I'm speaking with Ezra Klein. He first rose to prominence in the mid-2000s for his individual blogging, before being picked up to blog for The American Prospect and then The Washington Post. In 2014, he left WAPO to co-found the news website Vox.com, where he worked as executive director and hosted the fabulously popular podcast The Ezra Klein Show. While at Vox, Ezra helped start the Future Perfect Vertical, which does journalism with an effective altruist flavor, and in my view is some of the most valuable reporting going out there. In 2020, he published the book Why We're Polarized, and then just a few months ago, he left Vox to start a new column and host a revamped Ezra Klein show at the New York Times. 40% of the incoming Biden administration follow Ezra on Twitter, which is impressive, but really the most important thing is that he's a regular listener to the 80,000 Hours podcast. Thanks for coming on the show, Ezra. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm, I'm a big fan of the show. All right. I, uh, I hope to get to talk about what you think are the most pressing policy issues in the US today and how we could get more journalism that covers the world's most consequential problems in a sophisticated way. But first, as always, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important to do? Ooh, what am I working on at the moment? So uh, a couple things. So one is that I'm, I've been at the New York Times now or producing stuff at the New York Times now, God, four, six weeks. It's hard to tell time. <laughs> and so one thing I'm just trying to do is figure out in a proactive way, what is the agenda of my own column and, and, and podcast going to be? And this is going to be something I'm sure we're going to talk about here. It's one reason I was so excited to come on the show. But I've been thinking as I, you know, it's a tremendous privilege and honor to have access to a platform like that. And I want to make sure that the way I'm approaching the column and, and the show reflects that. It's something I think about Nick Kristoff, my colleague there. I've always looked at, I've always read Nick and I feel that every morning he wakes up and he feels the moral weight of having that column on him. And he tries to do something with that moral weight. And, and I want to make sure I'm doing that. And it's very easy to just get reactive to the news and, and so on. So part of what I'm doing right now is just trying to figure out what is the structure of that column going to be? What is its agenda going to be? What are the, the, the topics I want to be covering there that I feel are undercovered in, in the rest of the news? And then in the podcast, I'm, that's like a whole different ball of wax, but I'm sort of trying to revamp my, my approach to booking there. I want to be doing more big evergreen episodes and then more stuff that is idea based, but around the news. So I just did a, a really good episode, I thought, with David Wallace Wells and Leah Stokes that was using the, the Texas crisis to make a, a much broader conversation about climate change. So this may be a boring thing for me to say in terms of what I'm working on, but, but I'm doing right now a lot of meta work on how my work should look. 
and and be framed at the New York Times. All right, perfect. We'll uh, we'll come back to that in uh, in section two on, on on journalism and how to get more of the good stuff. But first, I want to talk about I guess the the thing that you're most familiar with and have the greatest expertise in, which is kind of digging into the weeds of U.S. policy and government. So yeah, I'm particularly keen to hear what you think are the most important priorities for the U.S. government now. I guess from the kind of effective altruist perspective of maximizing the well-being of people and animals or improving the long-term trajectory of, of humanity? So one thing I always push, and I'll, I'll give you more unusual answers to this in a second, but, but this is my like endless argument. The single biggest priority in American governance is to make it possible to govern in America. And so I, I put like I talk all the time about getting rid of the filibuster, but it basically doesn't matter which issue you're thinking about. It is all downstream of being able to pass things regularly through the U.S. Senate. If you cannot do that, then we have all these great arguments about everything. You know, should we do child allowances? What should we do in terms of foreign aid? But if you can't get 60 votes for anything, so nothing happens. So being able to make governance a more rapid feedback loop between what the people try to elect into power, what they what they want, then things happen. And then the US Congress can go back and update, iterate, repeal, etc. Like that is how things work everywhere else. It is also how they should work in American government. So I think of that as actually threshold questions. There are certain threshold questions about how American government is working or not working, that it's really important to solve them because once you open them up, then you open up a lot of other things. But I, I did want to give you an answer that is maybe more in the the effective altruist uh, like <laughs> niche lens, but, but that I'm thinking about and I want to be doing some writing about in the coming, you know, weeks or month. Um, you know, probably that I'm a vegan and that I've done a lot of work on, on animal suffering issues. And obviously that's a really politically tough space. There's a tremendous amount of suffering there. And I'll say, by the way, not just a tremendous, like unfathomable amount of animal suffering, but also a lot of human suffering. Um, for instance, you might've heard of the coronavirus pandemic, which comes out of a wet market in China. But if you look at the different virus strains that the CDC is following as potential pandemic threats, 70% of them are, are zoonotic. And if you look at, say, like the UN recommendations for how to prevent the next pandemic, I think two of the top five have to do with dealing with the way we were treating animals. I mean, factory farms in particular are just an extraordinary breeding ground, not just, by the way, for virus mutation, but for antibiotic resistance. So I've been in this space a little bit, and, and what I can tell you from it is that you're not going to get everybody to be vegan. And really, people do not like it when you try to make them be <laughs> vegan. So to the extent I'm optimistic on anything here, I'm very optimistic, like truly, truly um, thrilled about the pretty rapid advances being made in plant-based and cell-based meats. I think it is possible that within a reasonable time frame, you can do a lot there. But one issue in that space, which, you know, if you say talk to Bruce Friedrich, the, the head of the Good Food Institute, he'll tell you about, is that's basically all closed research. So there's venture capital flowing into Beyond Meats, into Impossible, into Hampton Creek, into Memphis Meats. But they're all private companies trying to get rich. And, you know, they, they actually are fighting with each other. I mean, if you there's a, a, an interview with the Beyond CEO on Neelai Patel's podcast and I mean, he was just trying to cut impossible off at the knees. So I think it's really important to have public money going into clean meat research, like billions and billions of dollars to accelerate this field. So then the findings in it are, are open source. People can you know, benefit from them. They can be used by all kinds of different companies. It's a platform to stand on. And the way we do with, with other things, including, by the way, pharmaceuticals, it wouldn't need that much money to be dealing with orders of magnitude, more research than we currently have. And clearly, there's a market for this. Clearly, there are, are fast advances being made in it. So I think, I think you could really imagine something where somebody slips a rider into a bill that puts over the next 10 years 
five or $10 billion into the space through, you know, it could be the NSF or the NIH, and it would have a really, really big impact. So that's like a, a nice, like, I think, huge return, small lift policy intervention that could be made that if it worked, you know, I mean, a world where 50% of meat consumption, not even 100, just 50% has moved to, to, to this stuff is going to be a lot less suffering, environmentally much better, better for health, a bunch of different things. Yeah, in a recent interview with Louis Bollard, he was pushing this as a potentially really valuable policy thing that uh, people in the effective altruism community could promote because what's a relatively tiny amount by the standards of the US government and even by the like science and R&D budget of the US government would imply a tripling or quadrupling of, of all of the funding that's going into plant-based meat and, and cellular agriculture and so on. And it's the kind of thing... Spending $10 billion on that over, over a period of years isn't going to engender massive opposition necessarily. So it's something that seems like politically feasible. I'll say as a... As a meta point on this and, and on a bunch of other things, and, and I am thinking this has probably been a good answer to your first question too, because I'm thinking about how to integrate this better into my my show and column. I am pretty persuaded that progressives, which I count myself as one, need to develop a better theory of technology. When I look at the set of issues I care about solving, like really, really am worried about. So animal suffering is one of them, but climate change is another. A lot of dignity of work issues about how work is done and, and inequality. I think basically all of them, the politics do not work without tremendous advancements in technology. So in climate change, we need to see continuation of not just renewable energy research and, and the prices of, of, of that space coming down, but also just like the infrastructure. Cement, for instance, is a huge problem. I just heard a great statistic on this from David Wallace-Wells, that if cement were a country, it would be the third largest emitter. And we don't really have a good answer right now on cement, how to do cement in a, in a, in a low emissions way. So you really do need a lot of research there. Um, I, I just mentioned, which also does, of course, relate to climate change, uh, meat, where I think the only path forward for that is going to be through, through technological advancement. Obviously, AI, this is a, a big question of the show. It's something that I kind of go back and forth on in my own views about, but it is coming Putting aside the question of AI that could destroy the world, AI that could take up a lot of jobs is coming, is here in certain respects. So being prepared for that, thinking about it, thinking about how you want to direct it, what kinds of regulatory structures you want around it is, is really important. Within the progressive movement, I think there's an, an understandable and quite deep skepticism of technology. I think it's very dominated by one kind of negative feelings towards billionaires getting rich on technology and then two towards social media platforms that you know we're all on, but also people are not very happy with. But I think that to solve some of the big problems, you want to have a forward-looking theory of what technology can do, a forward-looking theory of how government can direct funding and, and energy in that direction, right? So for, say, for decarbonization. And then also a theory of like, how are you going to deal with the, the negatives of that, right? Job displacement and, and, and other things. And if you just wait to be overwhelmed by technological change, your politics around it are going to be really poor for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. One way that I feel kind of alienated from mainstream political discourse is that I think that in a sense, it's just not sufficiently optimistic about how amazing the future could be in hundreds of years time. Like it could take a while, but it is totally foreseeable that we can use science and technology to end climate change, to end factory farming, to like cure most of the diseases that trouble us today, to reduce aging so people can live healthily to 100, to produce new antidepressants that massively improve mental health. Like all of these things would just be like a continuation of the progress we've seen in the last 200 years. But I, I, don't, I don't get a sense that many people want to like grasp for that and like really have a positive vision for how the future could be just dramatically better than, than things are today. I think it's a really tricky space politically. Um, obviously, I do want to grasp for that and I'm talking about some of the yeah. ways I, I have my own vision of that nature. I will say that 
this is a, a like discourse wise, a, a really tricky thing because uh, among other things, there is a lot, as you know, of pain and suffering right now. So when you're dealing with a, a world where a lot of people haven't hugged their parents in, in a year and, you know, tons of people are out of work and we've had a huge rise in extreme poverty, you're like, but a hundred years from now, everything can be great. <laughs> people, they don't just not listen to you. They get really angry at Ignored, you, right? Yeah. Because that's a... That um, I, I think I once heard Larry Summers describe this. He was talking about deaths, but as a focus on the abstract posterity, <laughs> which yeah. I thought was a very funny way of putting it. Um, you need to somehow balance making clear that you are, are 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 concerned about and there with people in their suffering now before you can start talking about how their descendants may not be suffering later. And, and again, that's to me why I would like to see a really different view of how progressives should interact with technology now, because I don't think this is a 100-year, a 200-year play. I think this is a 10-year play in many cases. I think there's things that AI can do that could either lead to yawning inequality in 10 or 15 years, or could actually help a lot of people quickly. I think the the meets space, like that is a lot of human suffering. If we were able to prevent the next pandemic, if we were able to prevent antibiotic resistance from taking off, if we're able to you know, make it so workers don't have to have these terrible jobs in slaughterhouses and we can instead transition that industry to something better. You could prevent a lot of suffering. Then they can also get people are getting cheaper, better, healthier food. That's fantastic. So sometimes I actually think people want to throw the ball too far down the field on technology. It's great. Let's have a 200-year view. Let's have a 100-year view. But let's have a 10-year view. Let's have a five-year view. And you need to convince people that you understand what they're going through through now and that your view of how you can make things better in 10 years is a view for them, not just a view for how things can be better for, for Rob and Ezra in 10 years. Do you worry that we could look back in 20 years' time and say, you know, we were worried about all of these things, about, about Trump, like indeed serious concerns, but we were rapidly heading towards a time when machines could do like almost all jobs better than people could do. And we were just going to have mass unemployment and it was going to be unclear what is the future of human work. And we talked about it a bit and thought it was kind of interesting, but no one was really developing an agenda for how to develop, <laughs> for how to deal with this world. And admittedly, it is hard to do. But that strikes me as one where, you know, what if GPT-3 just turns out to be kind of the, a stepping stone on the path to to like a kind of machine learning technology that can replace humans in a vast way. And we've just kind of not been doing that much about it. <laughs> yeah, I listen, I agree with this. I mean, what's the old Stuart Brand line? The only real news is science. I don't yeah. agree with that in its strong form, but 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 there's a weak form where I think you have to you have to agree with that. I worry a lot about the idea that we're missing the threat of our own era. Now, I wouldn't use Trump as the example. Like what the US president is doing is important, including for some of these issues you're talking about. But I often wonder, like, let me put it this way. How many words in U.S. newspapers digitally, let's say, have been spilled on tax policy in the past five years? And how many words on CRISPR? Yeah. <laughs> and when people look back on this era, is like the interesting thing going to have been fights over whether or not the top marginal tax rate was 39.5 or 35.4? <laughs> or is it going to be that for the first time human beings were taking control um, in ways that we really have no ethical or conceptual framework for dealing with yet? of human evolution, right? And for that matter, also of other species evolution. And by the way, you can look at this on the negative side too, right? I mean, there's a, a mass extinction going on and we don't write that much about that. I, I think it's probably always true that in any era, people are focused on the stories that feel immediately of importance to them in their lives right now and not so much on like the, the broad scope and sweep of humanity. But I also think, and I mean, this is part of the, the vision of starting Future Perfect at, at Vox and part of what I'm trying to think about in my columns now, 
that you do want to be balancing the natural tendency to focus on the things that that have an emotional immediacy to you with also the things that are going to be really important in, in 10 or 15 years. And that also means then developing a view, like developing a theory of what will be important. And that's hard too, by the way, right? I mean, you have mentioned AI. Should I be focusing in a in a scarce world on AI, CRISPR, lab-based meat or antibiotic resistance? Mm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky. Um, and so I don't wanna I don't wanna say that there's like a, a simple way to a simple way to do this, but but this is sort of what I'm getting at early on when I was talking about creating a, a framework of importance for, for my column, but also for for the news. I've been an editor-in-chief at, at Vox. I, I ran Wonk Blog at the Washington Post. I've been involved in coverage decisions for a long time. I, I know this world very well. The hardest thing to do in journalism as the leader of a publication, or even to some degree as a writer, is to maintain your own sense of what is important and not just be swept along in the tide of what every of what like the industry, like the narrative, the conversation has decided is important. I'll give one very small example because I think it's good to implicate people here who I think may be feeling a little smug in this conversation. I, I'm on I'm on Twitter. And all I see lately, like just an extraordinary amount of energy from venture capitalists and technologists and smart economists is arguing about whether or not Clubhouse is good. And so I just want to know, like I have do not have a very strong view on Clubhouse. It seems fine to me. Um, it reminds me a lot of Quora actually in its early days, and I liked Quora. But there is nobody who does not get very obsessed with the stuff that is of immediate impact in their lives. It's a real, it is a real difficult discipline to maintain a, a long view. And so I'm not saying I have it, but I don't want to pretend like even the people who professionally seem to have it, like it's very easy to get distracted by the latest shiny thing and controversy. Yeah, I think that those people would say that it was journalists who picked the fight in the first place by by criticizing Clubhouse. But regardless, it's it's that kind of disagreement between like different different tribes that just ends up like grabbing everybody, your imagination and attention. And then, but this is the thing: everybody is attracted to controversy, and that's actually yeah, exactly. it's not an accident. People focus on the issues you're talking about and not on others. There is not a lot of controversy day to day. Let's talk about politics again, right? Political journalists attract to controversy, and it it comes from many ways, but primarily controversy comes from people fighting over things that are happening right now because that's where you have organized interests and so on. So as soon as people start fighting, everybody starts paying attention. And so one of the ways the attentional agenda is hijacked is by controversy. The abstract posterity has more trouble generating controversy in the here and now than the here and now does. Did you see this uh, study that Dylan Matthews from Future Perfect uh, recently posted on Twitter that they were trying to figure out whether when journalists covered some policy issue, there was more likely to be policy improvements or policy reform within that area. And they found that the more coverage a topic got by journalists, the more you just saw polarization and disagreement and controversy. And in fact, reform was became less likely the more something was discussed. I'm not sure what their identification strategy was there exactly. But I could imagine that it could turn out when we do further research that journalism on politics is, ultim- is ultimately like creating more gridlock or maybe be preventing legislation passing. I suppose the filibuster would have to be removed to begin with. But I don't think there's any doubt about that. So I haven't seen the, the individual study. Obviously, Dylan is one of my favorite people in the world and is a hero. I haven't seen the individual study, but I would say that's like the theme of my entire book. Like I, I say this right at the beginning of the book that I wrote Why We're Polarized from the experience of continuously watching issues come into public debate there being a wide space of positive sum conversation about them at the beginning, and by the end, they've collapsed into zero sum. Now, I would say that the identification strategy is kind of obviously going to be off here. My experience of this process in real time is that it is not just like journalists, right? Journalists start covering something in part because the political system turns its attention to it. 
And, and, and I've written about this in the past. One of the key things in an era of high polarization, and then particularly when you combine an era of high polarization, party polarization with gridlocked political institutions, which is, you know, filibuster and other things, is it once something becomes, I always call it like the political eye of Sauron, mm. once the political <laughs> eye of Sauron turns onto an issue, yeah. that issue polarizes immediately. And so one of the mistakes activists make all the time, although it's a very understandable one, is it they think the good thing for their issue would be to get it a bunch of attention. And so a lot of activist strategy is built around trying to put issues on the agenda. But oftentimes, if you're successful in that, it means your issue becomes too polarizing to pass. Let, let me give one just example I always think about with this. So early on in Barack Obama's presidency, the theory of like everybody is that Barack Obama is a generationally skilled communicator, which he definitely was. And like the thing you want to do is have him communicate about your issues. And when Democrats have a gigantic majority in Congress, that actually works. There are different strategies for when one party has both power and the capacity to govern, because then if you get an issue onto their agenda, they can actually do something about it. So they pass, you know, the Affordable Care Act, Dodd-Frank, all this stuff. But of course, then in 2010, Republicans take the House. And so then from there on out, Democrats don't have control of government in any way where they can govern. So in Obama, Obama's second term, something you see is that a lot of the things that move forward, Obama makes a very specific effort to hang back from. So take immigration reform, which doesn't end up passing the House, but really impressively does pass this huge bill out of the Senate with a bipartisan coalition. Obama lets John McCain, Marco Rubio, you know, a, a bunch of Republicans be the leaders on immigration reform rather than coming out and giving a bunch of barn burning speeches about it. Because if he came out and tried to lead and take credit for this bill, he knew it wouldn't pass even in the Senate. Now, it doesn't ultimately pass, but but it's a really interesting strategy. And I think something you see with Joe Biden right now, Joe Biden is not out there burning up the country, like stumping for his agenda. He obviously is trying to pass an agenda. But I think there's a, a growing recognition among certainly Democratic political leaders that in a polarized era, being quieter on things can be the the better strategy. Yeah, I was going to say just Biden is killing it at that. He seems to say very little, generate little controversy. And I guess, I hope, I, I haven't, <laughs> it hasn't been interesting enough to follow, but I hope that good things are going on uh, going on in the background. But yeah, they, they kind of speak to the to the problem that when when they're just actually getting things done, then it's uh, it's not actually that yeah. interesting to read about. I'll, I'll make a small plug that to me, again, this is a way that having so many veto points in government, government that has so much trouble working amidst polarized parties and the filibuster betrays public accountability. Because I do think a better way for things to work is that issues go on the agenda. There is a big debate about them. And then like something happens or doesn't happen. And then the public can judge what happened or didn't happen. But as we're saying, an adaptive strategy to the era we're actually in is basically try to pass things quietly and without anybody noticing. So a good example of this actually happening, I don't think all that many people know we actually did a major update and overhaul of No Child Left Behind. No Child Left Behind was incredibly, incredibly controversial in the aughts. You know, a lot of Democrats ran against it in 04. By the time it gets overhauled, I believe in 2015 by Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, basically like the president, I don't want to say literally never talks about it, but does not ever try to like make a political issue out of education there. Nobody does. It is done like quietly in back rooms and fine, but I don't think that's actually a great way for things to work. I think it is a good strategy given how they do, but but this is part of why I keep saying 
among other things, a filibuster degrades deliberation because the more you deliberate about things, the more likely you make a filibuster. Yeah. Yeah. So just to explain to people who aren't American politics obsessives, basically in order to pass any normal legislation through the United States Senate, you need 60 votes out of 100 in order to, and, and that's a 60 person vote in order to end discussion so that you can actually have a vote on the piece of legislation. Yeah. You've been a very strong advocate for getting rid of that. And there's obviously a lot of benefits. Something that's a little bit surprising about advocating getting rid of that is that the Senate is kind of the most skewed of the different branches of the of the US government in terms of how much it benefits Republicans, who I think you probably, it would be fair to say you support more of the Democratic agenda than the Republican agenda. Uh, but it seems like in, <laughs> in, a, in a kind of 50-50 split election, I think you would expect Republicans to have about 54 seats in the Senate versus 46 seats or so for, for Democrats. It's like a really quite big difference. Or there's a, there's a huge skew because the kind of small and rural states are overrepresented and they tend to vote Republican. Why isn't that kind of the dominant consideration that you're just like empowering and making it easier to do things? Well, you're basically empowering Republicans, I think, to pass things you wouldn't agree with. Yeah, you can 100% say that that my advocacy of getting rid of the filibuster is is in a way an advocacy against ideological interest. I don't really believe yeah. it is, but but I do believe getting rid of the filibuster requires you to do other things too. So I am very concerned about this underlying skew. Another way I'd put it is right now the Senate is split in America 50-50. The 50 Democrats represent 41 million more people than the 50 Republicans. 41 million. That's actually a pretty big number. So there's a real problem here. One thing that getting rid of the filibuster could do, though, is allow something that is an important reform and change for other reasons, which is statehood for D.C. You have about 700,000 people there who are flatly disenfranchised, most of them black and brown, and at least the offering of statehood to Puerto Rico. Um, these are – which is I think something like 3 million people and is bigger than 20 states that currently have representation. This is you know, like a genuine crisis of democracy to have that many people who truly do not have congressional representation but are simply American citizens in this country. There is a lot you can do to balance out the way politics works if you get rid of the filibuster. Right now, you couldn't say do statehood for D.C. because you would need 60 votes. That would not fully – I've seen a lot of analyses of this. That would not fully offset the Republican advantage in the Senate. But I would prefer to have feedback loops of policy accountability even at the cost of there potentially being some – you know, minor advantage for Republicans in, in this. I have a lot of thoughts on this and, and they're probably going to, they get boring and weedsy. People go back and forth on like, well, maybe it won't help Republicans because like they don't actually want to pass as much legislation. It's all a little hard to say. I don't think we know how it would play out in practice. I think we know this isn't working. And when something isn't working, it is, you know, worth trying a standard reform that is used in other yeah. places. And I think generally works <laughs> Every better. Other place. You know, and then I would just say, look at, you know, it is possible the bias in the Senate is going to get worse in, in, in the coming years. But one reason it's gotten so bad is a, is a quite unusual restructuring of the coalitions generated by first Barack Obama and then Donald Trump in which it is very hard to tell what the correct identification of this kind of voter is. But it's a, it's a white, low-trust voter. Sometimes the thing people try to tag this to is low, lower education. That doesn't seem to quite capture it, which is one reason polls remained off in like Wisconsin and Michigan in 2020. But it is a it is a particular kind of voter with low trust in the political establishment who was more split between the parties before, but particularly moved towards the Republican Party under Donald Trump. It isn't clear to me that is going to maintain in like let's say the 10 year time frame. It could. But but it isn't obvious to me. So I don't think we I don't think it's a good idea to do all of your thinking about how politics should be structured based on potentially like epiphenomenal, you know, moments in political coalitions. Yeah, you might expect some regression to the to the long term average. Yeah. What's something important that your kind of political fellow travelers get really wrong in your view? Animal rights. 
Like, I I, like maybe, maybe since I've already said that, you want me to do a different one? Yeah. Um, but but, <laughs> well, I, but <laughs> I, I do first want to say just like animal rights. I think this is a just a tremendous quantity of suffering that a political movement that thinks of itself as concerned with suffering ignores. And not only ignores, but kind of like mocks and dismisses. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who think of themselves as good on all these issues, you know, you say, well, like, how about we don't torture so many chicks? They're like, oh, you crazy vegan and you're yeah. – <laughs> Like I, I yeah. really, I, I really don't like it, and I think it's a, it's a way we teach ourselves to be less compassionate. Let, let's talk about animals for a, little, for a little bit longer. I've noticed that there's this challenge for someone who's in a very influential and kind of kind of mainstream position like you, where you have this view that kind of there's this ongoing moral atrocity all the time, something that you could be talking about with people, something that you are kind of disgusted by. And it's maybe something that you should be like doing more advocacy on. You, you feel this pressure, I guess, or you feel a pull to talk about it more because it's astonishing that people don't discuss it and that more people aren't on board. But then you don't want to be ranting about that all the time and giving up all of your influence because you're just regarded as the person who won't shut up about about veganism. Is there like any kind of emotional tension that you that you feel with with, with this <laughs> or not gonna, on a regular basis? I mean, yeah, you could in some ways talk about nothing but this, as you say, but also there are a lot of other issues yeah. I do care about. It's not like I don't think climate change is important because I care about animal suffering. I care about human suffering too. And I also, I think there's a lot of linkages. My answer to this is that I do a lot of work on this issue. It's a core thing of my podcast and has been for years. It's part of why I, I really wanted Future Perfect to, to be created at Vox. I mean, I would say Vox, which I'm not there anymore. I don't think there is a mainstream publication that does as much to cover animal suffering as Vox, full stop. And it's something I'm incredibly proud of. And, you know, it, it's it's thanks to Dylan and, and, and Kelsey and Seagal and, and Albert, but it's also part of my legacy there. And it's something I'm really proud of. And so, and now at the New York Times, like, I think if you, you know, check back with me in a year, but I think you're going to see over the next year that this is not going to be an absent thread in my coverage. But but part of what I try to do here is that it is important to me to be persuasive. And this is something that I do think people miss a lot in politics. It is not, I don't want to say like on some emotional level, like, of course, we all want to be seen as good people and whatever. I do not want my effect on this issue to be that people know I'm a vegan. That's not important to me. And it's not helpful to me really as a human being. Yeah. Um, what I want my legacy on this issue to be is that I, I helped move policy in a positive direction, you know, particularly probably on clean meat funding. But also moved people's thinking on this. And, and I'll say one other thing here. A very important part of my thinking on this is I think a place where, where the animal rights movement has gone awry is that it's gotten weirdly obsessed with dietary purism. There are not that many other issues where in order to be understood as a serious advocate on the issue – you have to live in a pure way around the issue. So a lot of people who care about climate change, myself included, take flights and live very high carbon lifestyles because they live in a high carbon context. A lot of people who care about poverty, both global and, and, and national, do not you know, fully absorb the implications of the pond experiment and donate 85% of their income to developing countries or to malarial bed nets. But in animal issues, there can be a tendency to be like, if you are not a, a pure vegan, well, what are you even doing here? And I think it's a real mistake. It's very hard to get people to live in a way that the society around them is not set up for them to live. Some people will do it. And by the way, I always say this. I am not a perfect vegan. Like I always want to say this very clearly. I basically I, – I don't think I've eaten meat in years and I've – I don't think I've eaten eggs in years, but I occasionally like will slip or when traveling, like have a bit of dairy. Like I think it's, you know, I try to be as good as I can be in the context of how things work for me. And, and you know, I have a toddler and he drinks some milk and it's a whole thing. It's difficult. It's really like to me, it's important. Like what I want to do is move people. And if, you know, if 
if the way to do this is you get funding such that lab-based and plant-based meats accelerate super fast and they're better for you and more delicious and cheaper than the alternative, so they take up 30% of the market in you know 10 or 15 years, that's much more valuable than another 1% of people going vegan. And so I really want to try to be persuasive on this and I really want to try to move policy on this. So I think it's really important to not have one's position on this. And I'm not calling anybody out here. I'm just saying this is my approach to it and why I don't feel this is too rough of attention. I don't think what you want to be doing is posturing about how you're the only person who understands like the horrors of animal agriculture. I think what you want to be doing is trying to ask like, how can you move people's opinions in a direction that will lead to to, to less suffering for animals? And the final thing I know I've uh, talked on this for a minute, I have so much admiration for people like Bruce Friedrich, Leah Garces at Mercy for Animals, David Coleman Heidi at the Humane League, who are like out there making the compromises and building weird coalitions and, you know, working within a system where they know like they don't get to be pure. I think of that in some ways as like the highest form of politics to be just trying to make things better even when that requires you to be accepting and making coalitions that are difficult for you. And, and I just really want to give them a shout out on great work there. Yeah. Let me put a couple of wacky policy ideas to you uh, that, that I think might be uh, extremely important, but which uh, people don't, don't think about that much along the lines of, of CRISPR. So I think it could be incredibly important to allow price gouging, or I guess I should come up with a better branding for that, but basically to allow prices you to be definitely much higher. definitely should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gouging, sounds bad. But uh, to, basically, I think we could have a lot more preparedness for disasters as a society if we allowed prices for scarce and important things like face masks to become much higher during a pandemic or for you know things that people need during a hurricane, the prices for those goods to rise a lot in the aftermath of a hurricane because it would firstly give people an incentive to stockpile those things so that they're available and they can make that they can stick them all in a basement and then they can be available for people at least like more available than they otherwise would be during a disaster uh, and it also gives people a reason to quickly like manufacture as many of the, them as they can or move them from one place to another and basically by preventing price signals from operating during any kinds of natural disasters and other disasters like pandemics we're allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and like giving up the benefits that a market system and market pricing would would offer but people just hate this <laughs> as, far as i know nobody is on board with this agenda I don't think it's correct, to be honest with you. I, I don't. Okay. I'm, it's not that I would not be on board with it necessarily if I thought it would work. I don't think it would work the way you think it will. So let me say a couple things okay. here. One, a policy that you think is a good policy but would be toxically unpopular and create overwhelming backlash is actually not a good policy. Like this thing where human beings and their reactions to the things we do don't matter. It's like you really want to be I, – I always want to be very careful with that kind of technocratic – like, no, you don't understand. If like I make it so face masks are now you know $2,000 and – you can have effects from things like that that are devastating then to the things you care about, right? So it's really important to think about what the, the political feedback loops are going to be with, with the things you support. But then let me say to the second thing, what you're basically saying here is that in the aftermath of a disaster, you need a way of making it clear both before, you know, like when the disaster is hypothetical and, and, and post when it is actual. You need a way of making it clear that you're going to be able to make money in this space, it is not in any way obvious to me that it is a better strategy to do that, particularly given the political issues here, or easier to do that by allowing price gouging than by doing all kinds of things like you could set up prize systems in advance in government. Government could just spend money more easily to, to buy things like the Defense Production Act should have been done on masking. Masking is in some ways a, a reasonably good example. This is something that, you know, like the market actually worked reasonably well here. I would like to see more innovation, but I don't see, I don't really see that a reason to believe that it would have worked differently or faster if we had made masks unaffordable for lots of people. And by the way, masks well, are a place. An equal number of masks would have been this. 
Actually, more more masks would have been available. So in one sense, they would be more affordable. But sorry, sorry, I let you finish. It's possible, but I'm I'm actually not sure. And I would also note, you can sell masks of any price right now. There is a lot of like, I buy these masks. I forgot what they're called, something with a G. But they're the only ones that don't fog my glasses. But they're like $24 a piece compared to some of the masks. Like that's basically price gouging. I don't really see the market as, as working poorly. I do understand that you're saying this on, on other things. So I think the canonical example of this is, is, is oil and, and, and gasoline in the aftermath of, of, of big disasters. I just think that running society like that or trying to run society on that tends to bring so much backlash that there is easier and more effective things to do through other kinds of more enlightened policy. Like I just don't buy into economist mind quite that fully. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I support other efforts like government stockpiling a mask, but you know, I was talking about this, you know, 10, 20 years ago, everyone in the know knew that the government should be stockpiling masks against a pandemic, but it didn't happen in almost any country or at least n- nowhere near a sufficient degree. So I feel like given that we should expect government policy to fail in all kinds of ways, having this spillover mechanism where when we haven't stockpiled enough, when when the government hasn't done enough in these other ways, that there is incentives for private actors to anticipate that and then stockpile themselves in the hope of making making a whole lot of money. I would say that if you were a private actor who two years ago understood, like you got a, a message from the future that there was going to be a, a global pandemic virus, like you're 3M, let's say, and like future you comes back is like, listen, I got some terrible news, but maybe good for you. Yes. You had every incentive and good incentives to like do a ton of research and building and, and, and piling up of masks. Like there was a lot of demand for them. It's not like nobody can but, but, make yeah. money here. But people, no, people were arrested. People were arrested for selling them for 10 times the normal price. No, I understand that. that but there had. was a lot of money to be made not selling them for 10 times the normal price. Like the fact that there was a huge supply constraint meant that people were selling out of good masks. So like I don't think you need the price gouging to do what you're talking about here. Oh, no, but, but that's, that's not enough because in any year, of course, like the odds of a terrible pandemic that's going to sell out all of your face masks that you have sitting around is relatively low, which means you're just like accepting all of these holding costs, like having to deal with the stock, allowing some of it to expire, having to buy new stuff. There's all these extra costs that are involved in transferring goods across time to the, the point where they're, where they're really needed. People won't even like compensate people for that, let alone having the greater foresight to have stockpiled things that otherwise wouldn't be available. Like the more rare the event is, the more you need to be able to charge a premium on that rare occasion to cover like all of the costs and all of the scenarios where there wasn't a pandemic and you just like lost money. Yeah, I I think what I'm saying is that the I think it'd be more effective, like because we are talking about two separate policies here, like to your point that, well, the government didn't stockpile masks. Well, it also didn't allow price gouging. So the thing you're you're saying here is like which which avenue is better for for the world you want to have. And like I think the avenue where we should have like easier triggers and disaster relief spending to come in. To be honest, like when I look at failures over the course of the coronavirus pandemic and frankly, some others as well, I am more worried about regulatory structures that are not able to act fast enough and are not able to change some of their ongoing processes, given the trade-offs of, of, of speed in that moment, than I am about, about some of these other situations. Like I think the story on at-home rapid testing is a lot worse than the story on masking. So I just don't see price gouging as like one, that effective or two, like that much of an important lesson of, of, of this pandemic. Like I would like to see people being able to sell tons of rapid at-home tests for all kinds of pricing, but the issue is the FDA won't let them. And so like, I'm more concerned um, to just be honest, like I, I, this just isn't one of my lessons from the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. It's like a political non-starter in, in our culture. So I guess it maybe it just drives me up the wall as a, as an, as an economist, just why, why can't people see things the way that. Econ- Listen, I've never <laughs> known an economist. Degrees. I've known <laughs> economists making this argument for price gouging for a long time. And, and I yeah. do think that, uh, 
you know, a lot of things about how human beings work drive economists up the wall, but, but there's information <laughs> in them. And I don't think that like, you know, you gotta, you gotta make the model, yeah. um, accept how human beings work, not just be like, our human beings yeah. aren't fitting the model. What the hell's wrong with them? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very frustrating, Ezra. All right. Yeah. I was going to ask, what is an important broader lesson to take away from the overall U.S. government response to COVID-19? But I guess, yeah, that, that's a good chance to talk about this rapid testing. Cause I've, I've talked in recent episodes about problems with the vaccine approval and ways that the FDA has messed up, but we haven't talked about testing. So yeah, could you go into that? So testing, and, and I want to note there's disagreement here. I'm obviously not an epidemiologist, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I've talked to enough people, and I have gotten pushback from smart people on this too. There are people who think the FDA has been right on, on rapid at-home testing, but I am at this point not one of them. The FDA has held testing to basically a diagnostic standard, you know, and has asked, like, are these tests things that we would agree to use in a doctor's office? And, the, you know, for various reasons, there's a high bar for that. You might argue there should be a lower one, but but there's a reason I think there's a high bar. The thing that people care about this, and, and Michael Mean at Harvard has been sort of a leader in it, but a lot of people have been making these arguments, is that, you know, when you're dealing with population-level health, you need to make different trade-offs. And so a test that is rapid, that is repeatable, and has a high false positive rate could be totally fine because you could take – you get one, maybe it's false positive, you use four more test strips, and if four out of five of them are positive, you know, or four out of five of them are negative, then, then you take that. And maybe then you even go to the doctor and get a PCR test. The FDA on this particular issue, like my my read of it, is that – they have been following their systems. In many cases, they've been accelerating their systems. They feel like they are working their tails off and doing and doing a you know an incredible job. And in certain ways, they have. But I think some of their systems, like we have seen, are not the right systems and are not the right way to think about this. Like I do not think, for instance, at this point, that I'm even sure the FDA should be the one looking at something like rapid at-home testing. Like there are all kinds of things we sell to people and like let them take the risk on it. So that is definitely one lesson. I mean, a secondary lesson is obviously just pandemic preparedness, you know, and we were running and, and we could talk about coverage of, of coronavirus specifically, but, you know, we ran a piece in Future Perfect from Ron Klain, who's now the chief of staff years ago about the ways in which we were underprepared for the pandemic. And I think we've seen some of them, like, you know, something that was a known problem was a lack of genomic testing across the country. And right now, as different strains are mutating, we're seeing some of the issues with that, with that absence. It is a little hard for me, I will say, to separate what are policy problem lessons of the pandemic in America from the very unusual governance personnel <laughs> we had in place in America during the pandemic? And I want to note that, you know, look at Europe. There are things we did better and things we did worse. I think for a lot of the period, we did a lot of things worse in Europe. And then one thing I give the I give the Trump administration credit here, warp speed and the very heavy buy-up of supply was incredibly, incredibly useful. So I think we've looked a lot better than Europe, certainly better than the than the EU structure, not the UK at this point on vaccination. So I do give them credit there. There are a lot of things we should have done better, but a lot of them have to do with coordination between different levels of government and consistent messaging and um, structures where people are getting uh, good information quickly. And it is not clear to me that we had like a policy or systems failure there as opposed to a personnel failure. It's quite unprecedented and unusual to have the president saying it is not my job to help these governors who don't like me during a pandemic. And I want to put this all on Trump. This was hard. There's a lot going on here. There are a lot of other failures to talk about. But it, it, it is a little bit difficult sometimes for me to look through the haze of like the weirdness of the personnel we had to see like – well, what would have been different if just Mitt Romney had been president? Not, I'm not even saying a Democrat here. Like, what if we were in the second term of Mitt Romney? How would this have gone differently? Is like, I, to me, the really interesting counterfactual. Yeah, there were definitely personnel issues, I would say. But 
I think the issues with the CDC and the FDA can't mostly be blamed on the Trump administration specifically. It seems like that would have happened probably under under any other president. The way the CDC like dramatically slowed down, held back testing, stopped other people from testing. Like they were acting as if there was a conspiracy to prevent people from finding out that, that the COVID nineteen was here. I don't think that was the case. I think it was incompetence. But so I'm not sure you can separate those things. So th- this is this is a, a a trickier part of this. I think people have in their heads a kind of heuristic that like Republicans are good at deregulation and Democrats love regulation. So if we had a problem of excessive and slow regulation, definitely would have been any better under Democrats. CDC and FDA had different failures. And I am not – I don't know the counterfactual, right? So I want to say we're we're talking in a world of hypotheticals here. But do I believe that – like let's put this differently. Do I believe that if Joe Biden was president and Ron Klain – who is as knowledgeable about pandemic response as anybody in this country had been his chief of staff. And there was a really good relationship between the White House and the FDA and the and the CDC, because, of course, as, as you know, there was a horrific relationship between the White House and the CDC in particular during this period under under Donald Trump. It is really hard to get bureaucracies to move and to change. I actually did a, an interview with Klain at some point where he had a really nice line on this. He said, even if you are the president and you are standing on the table, and you are screaming, this is a horrible problem, and the government needs to do something about it, and we need to get all together here. He said, the government's bureaucracy, it can work pretty well in that circumstance. But if you are the president, and you are saying publicly, I don't want to see these numbers, I don't want you scaring people and tanking the stock market, and you have a bureaucracy that already is like demoralized and messed up, and like the CDC director was muzzled for a lot of this period, right? We know that. Then things are going to work really badly. So I think a real – to me, a really interesting question right now is what happens to the FDA under Biden? Does it move faster or slower? So like they're going to have to to show this. Um, I've had Vivek Murthy on my show. He has said the FDA in his view is being too slow and conservative on rapid at-home testing. There's already been at least one rapid at-home test accepted now under – you know since Biden has come in, but it's not the kind that I would like to see. So we're going to see if this changes. There are a lot of failures here. I'm agreeing with you broadly on like particularly like some FDA failures. But I do think it's – we do not know the counterfactual of what if you had a president and a structure that respected and had a good relationship with its own bureaucracy, managed it effectively, and was putting pressure on in the right ways as opposed to the wrong ways. The fact that a bureaucracy that complex at a time of that level of stress was performing badly under bad kinds of pressure, like pressure to perform badly, it's not shocking and it can only tell us so much. Yeah, on the on the FDA, I feel like the last year has just driven me into becoming a kind of frothing at the mouth lunatic where everything that the FDA does like drives me crazy and I have no objectivity anymore because some of the things they do just seem so inexplicable and so harmful and to have killed so many people that I don't I don't know whether like am I crazy or is or is the world crazy? I've kind of been I'm at the point where I'm just like the drug part of the FDA should just be shut down and then like we have to start from scratch because it seems like the incentives that they're following and the processes that they're following are just so dangerous to society. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do, and and I have very conflicted thoughts on it because there's a part of me that's where you are. And then there's like the reporter part of me that is always like, okay, these are smart people who know more about the issue than you. And so like what are they seeing that you're not? And, and here's one thing I will tell you they are seeing that, that you and I are not. So far, it is the case, thank God, that the vaccines that have come out have worked really, really well. And that's true for, for Pfizer, for Moderna, for J&J, and I think ultimately it will be true to some degree for AstraZeneca, Oxford. Even so, depending on your poll, somewhere between 20 and 40% of Americans say they are not going to take this vaccine. It is not safe. 
you and me, like I'm sure we both read Marginal Revolution and we're in Twitter conversations about how <laughs> terrible this is and why doesn't anybody allow price gouging and why isn't everybody rational? Public health experts operate under the constant, unbelievable level of terror. Not that Robert Wiblin is not going to take a vaccine, but that something is going to go wrong with a vaccine and 50% of the country is going to say absolutely fucking not. And so there are certain things where I'm like, why are they taking so long to schedule a meeting? That can't possibly be – like I, my, my, my friend Matt Iglesias had this line. He's like, are they getting there by stagecoach? Like what is – why is this meeting yeah. so slow? <laughs> but there are other things where the conservatism is coming from, from the simple yeah. fact, like to put this bluntly, they deal with the consequences of a failure in a way you and I don't. You and I are sitting here like go faster. Like the tradeoffs are obvious here and they're saying – Actually, no, the trade-offs are, are not obvious. And if this goes wrong, we could have vaccine hesitancy that destroys the entire effort. So it's not I, – I, I don't want to fully be on – I am not fully on their side, actually. I think there have been a lot of issues. And if you look at my columns, I've been calling out the FDA, not, not trying to defend them. But I want – like given where you were on this, like I want to push back in the other direction. I think that there is a – there is a very different kind of feedback they are getting and, a, and a, a kind of thing they fear, which is not that like just the vaccine will be three weeks slower than it should have been. But if they are wrong, if they did not get enough data, if they missed something, they are going to imperil the whole effort. And that will also kill a gigantic number of people. And so it's hard, like heavy as a head that wears a crown. Yeah, I guess when I when I hear that, I think, well, I would just move to a completely different system where people can take whatever things they want and then the FDA can certify the ones that they think are safe. And if people decide to take things that the FDA hasn't certified, then it's their responsibility and it's their skin in the game to to like do their own research and figure out whether it's whether it's safe. And then you and I could potentially opt in to take the vaccines based on the papers that we've read. And later later on, the FDA will certify that it's that it's safe for everyone else to take the people who are who, who are more cautious. But that's just like such a different framework than than the one in which the FDA I, I would operates. Sort of, I have a different version of this. I. I I would be interested and have you know tweeted a bit about this. I think I saw this first. Different people suggested it. I saw it from Scott Sumner not that long ago. This idea of regulatory reciprocity. And I think he had like, what if you had a situation where if any of the top 20 countries measured by GDP, um, their regulatory authority had cleared something, then we would say you can sign a waiver and take it. I don't think I would say 20. I would say, why don't we start with three? Why don't we say if the UK, the EU, or, you know, have approved something or the US, obviously, you can take it. And like, I don't see yeah. any reason to believe the UK or the EU. In fact, if anything, I think the EU has performed worse than America's FDA in this period. That said, again, I think the, the, the much more laissez-faire approach you just took, I, I think it falls to the same issue that, that I just said. Look, man, think of how much information and resources you have at your disposal, how smart you are, the podcast you run, who you can get to talk to you. A lot of people get sold snake oil. And it's one thing if that snake oil is like homeopathic bullshit that just doesn't work. It's another thing if it kills them. It's another thing if they got bad information and then also the rest of us are reading that there's an outbreak of 75 deaths because of a vaccine. Like I do think you have to think about politics as working off of animal spirits a little bit more than you do. I think this has come up a little bit in this. You have a very economist view of this stuff. If things get out of control in public messaging, like as an economist, you know, if from, this is where animal spirits comes from. If things get out of control, you can crash a financial market. You can crash a public health response too. So I'm not saying they've been appropriately conservative, but I am saying I think you're being a little inappropriately um, non-conservative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd, love to, I'd love to push back on that. I understand the arguments in favor. I just think the amount of damage that's being done is kind of underestimated and would be better to go in a different direction. But I want to want to leave some time to talk about uh, about journalism and how to improve public discourse in general. Yeah, and you emailed me a few weeks ago. You said, I've been thinking a lot about how effective altruism can and should influence media coverage. 
Yeah. What What did you end up concluding about that? Um, how do you think you can get kind of more coverage of the most important issues in, in the New York Times more broadly, just beyond choosing choosing topics for your, for your own column? Well, I don't know about the New York Times more broadly because I I have made the decision to step out of management for a while and I'm exulting in that in that capacity to just worry about my own things. But let me talk about what I was thinking about there and what I'm still thinking about because I, I do think about I do think about this part broadly. The question here is how does journalism, capital J, journalism as an industry, how does it decide what's important? Like how do we decide given everything that could be on the front page, right? Given that every day could be and this many people died of malaria today too, how do we decide what is there? And the answer is complicated. Like the answer is some mixture and it's, by the way, non-rigorous and not a framework that we would ever publish publicly and not something where I think we even hew very well to our own public rhetoric about it. It is some mixture of a subjective judgment of importance, a subjective judgment of like how interesting something is, how interesting it will be to the audience. And by the way, I think that's become stronger in the age of social media where there's more of a sense of like everybody is talking about X. And so, of course, you have to put something about X, you know, on your on your homepage. But X is obvious is often something dumb. And so maybe it wasn't that important. And then and this one's really important to me, path dependence, things that we have believed to be important in the past we tend to give an easier ride to being important in the future. Like something I think that I've been signaling in this conversation is I think taxes in general are less important than the DC political debate makes them seem. But that comes from like for a very long time. They have been important. We have forever have taxing debates in Washington. There are like a lot of committees that do it. There have been periods when like the debates we're having over the tax code were really central to how the economy would perform. We've done really big reforms that were needed at other times in our history. And so Issues we know about and have an entire superstructure for considering congressional committees, think tanks, experts, et cetera, get a lot more play than issues that don't have that structure. So take AI here. I certainly think AI is more important than marginal changes in taxation over the next 10 or 15 years, but there's very little infrastructure for considering it. There isn't a committee in Congress that primarily deals with AI. It's like a sub issue of some of the like the backwater technology committees. There aren't, you know, in the executive branch, it's not really anybody's distinctive job. There aren't like big think tanks on this. I know there are a couple out here in, in, in the Bay Area that look at it and, and at Oxford, but it's not something like where Brookings has a gigantic AI program. There aren't as many interests coming in on it. And so that issue where things that have been important in the past have a superstructure for pushing importance in the future, relationships with journalists, like think tank reports that are coming out, lobbyists who are talking to members of Congress on it, all of that, it, it really matters. And so that's why I think a lot about frameworks. And, and one reason that you know I wanted to create Future Perfect at Vox is as I began to learn about effective altruism, one of my immediate views on it was this is a framework for thinking about importance that could be a different lens we could use in journalism. It could help us order things differently. Like politics has its ordering, like its ordinal ranking of priorities and effective altruism has its ordinal ranking of priorities, more or less. I'm not saying in any place it's like all written down and agreed upon, but I think you can, you can get it, you get, you get it in the water. And it's not even that I think I fully agree all the time with EA's ordinal ranking of priorities. It's that I think it is another really valuable lens and should be one that you know we actually explicitly put into newsrooms to cover in the same way that people who are, you know, a political journalist like have the political lens. So that's why that's part of the way it influences my work. Like I talk to EA people, I ask them what they think is important. And it's like in the back of my mind, am I actually covering these things or not? And if I'm not, then do I have a good excuse for why I'm not? Am I sure that the work I'm doing is more valuable than than that would be? Yeah. 
I kind of always want to look for what's the systematic reason that the incentives line up such that some things get covered. And I guess you were saying one one reason is path dependence, that like kind of whatever's been covered in the past kind of tends to carry on. I guess things that were in the curriculum 100 years ago are sometimes still in the curriculum today, even if, if you wouldn't add them if you were going from, from scratch. But the problem seems pretty fundamental because it's most people read the news not necessarily for information that they're going to take action on, that it's more kind of for entertainment. I guess recently it's been, been because people are terrified and they want to understand things, but more often people are kind of reading it out of like general interest. They just kind of want it to be interesting or, or to be entertaining. And if that's the pull from consumers, if that's what they're kind of demanding, then for businesses that are trying to provide that, it, the, the journalism doesn't have to be about the most impressing issues and, and how to solve them, or, or even just like the most pressing issues in general. It can kind of be about whatever, whatever people can, can spin as kind of entertaining. Did, did you agree that that's kind of like a fundamental issue? I mean, that is true. Yeah, but, but I would think about that a little differently. I think it is important to admit that there is a part of why people read the news that is entertainment and hobbyism. You're not going to get rid of that. But it's only one thread. People want a mix of stuff that is interesting. They want a mix of stuff. I mean, and we've always had this, right? We have sections in the news. And so the fact that you have a style section and a culture section and, you know, the magazine that comes out on Sunday where you have like long form interesting work and you also have the A section and A1 and, you know, what you want to be doing is having the right mix across the entire product. Because also, by the way, for what you're talking about, like, let's say you you, you blow the whole thing up and you say, I'm going to rigorously only cover the most important stories in the world and then nobody reads your publication, is that actually a good, you know, you actually need to cross-subsidize things. It has forever been the case that political coverage has more power in local newspapers because sports coverage is also in the paper. People who wouldn't come to an all- local political corruption news outlet do come to learn about the local sports team. And then when they see a political corruption story, that corruption has power because like the, 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 the people in power know that everybody coming to the paper to check out how the sports team did saw it. So you are dealing with an ecosystem, a bundle that, that, that needs to be taken seriously. My issue is more like within the part of that bundle that is like, that imagines itself as like, we do the important work do we actually have the right priority structure? And I would say in general that we don't. We sometimes do. And I think probably over the past year with coronavirus and things, we, we've been better. But I think there's a, a lot of path dependence, a lot of pretending that controversy is a driver of importance, and also just sometimes a, a lack of creativity in, in how to do coverage that is a problem. But it has always been my belief. It was, I think, proven out at Vox. I see it currently at the Times in my columns. If you do important stuff well, there's an audience for it always. And, and I do think it's harder sometimes to do well, right? You can't just drift off of the fact that everybody's talking about something and so they might click on it pretty easily. But I've always said this. This is like one of my like refrains at, at Vox as an editor. If there is something important happening in the world and you can't make the audience interested in it, that is always your failure and it is never the audience's failure. Like it is our job as professional writers and video makers and podcasters and whatever to make this stuff appealing and things people like engaging with as opposed to things that are complicated, boring, and that turn them off. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a productive attitude to, to have as a, as a content producer. But there are like, there's a lot of issues where it's just like, it's a lot harder. There's, there's some things that are much easier, much more grabby to the human mind than others. And yeah, I guess you just have, just have to recognize that it's going to be potentially challenging to fund a coverage of really boring or like do really unpleasant things. Like people don't want to read about factory farming, I think, because it's extremely unpleasant and it's challenging for them. And that, that makes it kind of hard to hard to finance on a commercial basis. Although, but I, I'll tell you, animal coverage does great. 
Really? Animal suffering issue? They do great. Like that's actually like a, that is a, an incorrect – I'm not saying you're incorrect. It, I think it is a broadly believed thing that nobody's going to read this stuff and I can say with real certainty they do. And by the way, pretty within the EA world, it is very much a case that some of the things that, that effective altruists care a lot about are like catnip for readers. So for instance, I think in many ways – existential AI risk gets too much coverage compared to like what might AI do over the next 20 years. Not to say it gets too much funding. I know, I know, but it gets a lot of coverage. But one reason, one reason it gets a lot of coverage is that it's super interesting. It's like reading, it's like reading the the news stories that, you know, come before the Terminator saga. And so why doesn't then, why is it there then more just broad coverage of AI? I think that actually has a lot more to do with path dependence than it does with reader interest. I think a lot of things we cover in journalism are less intrinsically interesting than like, are we creating super intelligent computers and will those computers kill us? You know, but we don't like, there are a lot of people who've been working at outlets for a long time who cover, you know, Congress and not a lot of people who cover AI. And so like, that's actually something that in 30 years may just be different, but there is a, there is a, a lag in the institutional structure. Like, it's hard to get journals to cover stuff they don't they don't know and and it's hard to this is just like a, a an institutional management thing but it's often hard to like be the first to move people onto new beats and then also if your business model is under stress which is true for almost everybody in journalism it's really hard to then take flyers on new beats yeah so framing you're taking this is different and maybe better than the one that I've usually had in my head because I've usually thought about this as like how do you get more funding or like more like advertising revenue so that you can fund more people to more people like Dylan Matthews and Kelsey working at, at Future Perfect covering those issues but you're thinking more like there's already people who think of themselves as covering the most important issues in a sophisticated way and sometimes they're not sometimes they're covering things that actually aren't that important and maybe we could switch them and like get them to think about that other issues are more important I would think of that as a process, actually, that, you know, one of the points of Fox, one of the points of Future Perfect is to change journalism more broadly, not just within the walls of the institution, but to create models of things that other people are going to use. I would say that if you look at explanatory journalism, it looks different from before we launched at Vox. It's everywhere. And people learned a lot of those lessons um, in the way we tried to do them. And then, you know, I think this is less true for Future Perfect yet, but to your point, we built Future Perfect on an alternative funding stream. Like I worked with the Rockefeller Foundation to get the seed funding for that organization. And then it has a more diverse set of, of philanthropic funders now. But if it keeps growing, which I hope it will, and by the way, I think that's a totally reasonable way to fund journalism. If it keeps growing over time, it will also just, you know, other places will compete, maybe not just through philanthropic, but just by, you know, making that something that their advertising dollars cover. And of course, by the way, at Box, advertising dollars also cover Future Perfect, right? Everything is cross-subsidized. But yeah, I don't think what you're saying is wrong. What I would say is I would think about that as a process. I would think about it is very helpful when trying to get a new form of coverage off the ground to create a funding model for it. But once that funding model is created, if it is successful at some point, it is going to just become part of the core operations of the institution. So a good example here, I would say, is is poverty and inequality coverage. There is, if you look around the media, a lot of coverage of poverty and inequality issues funded by foundations. Um, Ford did a big project a couple of years back. At the same time, there is a lot of poverty and inequality coverage that is not funded by foundation. This is just like, you're an economy reporter, report on some poverty stuff. And so what you want is that, that mix, but that comes once you've like won the, the war over whether or not this is a core issue that is part of simply a responsible news package. I'm super interested to know if there's any other lessons you learned. I guess you found out that animal welfare, factory farming stuff does quite well. What other like really important issues do like surprisingly well with the audience and actually have legs? That's a good question. I don't know that I have a list like that. I think animals is actually at the top of my list of something people like are quite wrong about. 
with other things, it tends to depend really on how you do it. And so there are there are a lot of issues where there's a huge amount of variance in how well things do. And it just kind of depends. Did you frame it well? Like did the did like the spirits of the internet pick it up or not? And so there aren't that many where it's just like a cheat code to writing about it. I mean, there are, there are people who do well. Like it's very easy to get traffic for writing about Elon Musk, for instance. You know, there, there are certain things that if you can attach them to somebody, that will make it easier to get to get attention. But there aren't that many things where I think there's a like a broad issue that like if only we covered it, everybody would would love reading the the article. I don't think there's that many twenty dollar bills down on the journalism floor, but there's yeah. you know doing things better and worse. Things that are fun, yeah. Are there any things that were it's the other way around where you might expect it to be popular, but actually it just uh, regularly tanked? I think Kelsey, in my interview with her a few years ago, said that she was always disappointed with the traffic numbers, I think, on the global development stuff because she would like, write very good, sophisticated articles about like what works in global development. And she just found it very hard to get lots of, lots of readers for those. Yeah, I think global development is probably the best answer to that. Again, I want to be really clear. It's not impossible. We have had great readership for global development things. There's a lot of ways to try to approach it. But it is hard to get people interested. It is hard to get an American audience interested in problems afflicting people somewhere else. That is just true. And, uh, you know, I think it relates to kind of pretty normal things in human nature. But, but, but that's, a, that's a fact. So in terms of the, the broader group of people in the media who think of themselves as covering, you know, really important issues, they want to like deal with what is the most, what are the most important issues and what, what do people really need to know in order to make the world better? What can be done to get them to, uh, I guess, cover issues that, well, in as much as they're mistaken, in as much as we have some, some wisdom to share about what actually is more important than what they're already covering, what do you think can be done to kind of change the path dependency there to get us out of like the, the path that we're currently on? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press on the point you made a second ago. I think it'd be really good if something that effective altruists tried to do was create business models for the kind of coverage they would like to see. I think media is often a public good. I think it really can focus attention. I think it can very much focus political attention and, and, and change the outcomes of legislation. And so, you know, at a time of a lot of media stress, I think it's for a lot of funders would be a really high return, low dollar investment. I mean, maybe I'm talking my book here, but now I'm, I'm a New York Times <laughs> columnist. You're not going to be funding me. I think it's worthwhile to try to create these models. I don't think what's going to happen is you're going to call people up and be like, you're doing your coverage all wrong. And they're going to say, oh, thank you, you know, for telling me like my life's work is garbage. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. I think, I think, I don't think path dependence tends to end because you tell people like snap out of it. I think that what happens is like new institutions arise that force everybody else to competitively react. So, you know, I do, I think Future Perfect is having some of this effect. And, and I think there's a lot more opportunity, including in Future Perfect itself. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on what those models might be? I mean, I guess there's philanthropy seems like pretty promising. I think OpenPhil has funded Future, oh, actually, no, sorry, not OpenPhil. <laughs> they group funded a Future Perfect, but they, they recently funded a series of articles on factory farming, I think, in the, in the Guardian. And uh-huh. it's kind of amazing to me how cheap it is to pay writers to, to do journalism or how, how many stories you can get and how many views you can get for a relatively small amount of, of, uh, of donor funding. Are there any other business models that people should should think about here other than foundation funding? And I guess just trying to do it commercially. I mean, I think foundation funding is good. I like the model of trying to build institutions inside institutions. So I think one way foundations often think about this is, you know, we're going to go to the Atlantic and we're going to, you know, partner. And there's going to be 15 articles over the next year on, you know, the racial wealth gap. I mean, this is a hypothetical I want to note. And that's a good thing to do. And then, you know, that orients the coverage in that way. It creates resources to do more reporting, right? Doing this coverage well is very, it can be, can be not expensive by the terms of like foundation funding, but expensive by the terms of, of journals and budgets. But 
I think there's real value in going bigger than that and creating institutions and, you know, sections, right, that have an editor that have writers who are dedicated to this. So it's not like the fifth thing they're doing is they have to fulfill the terms of this, you know, of this foundation partnership, but it's actually like a group of people who are committed to this issue and then can prove out that it works unusually well. And then maybe the larger institution says, that's great. That's working really well. Like, let's keep building on that. So I would say the thing I think people underestimate here in terms of its value is actually institutions inside institutions. Creating a new institution is possible, but that's a lot of work from scratch. And you've got to like build your audience from nothing. You have to build a social media team. You have to build potentially an advertising team, like da, 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 da. Who's doing your CMS? How are you doing technical support? There's a lot more that goes into making these things work than people realize who's doing your, your legal side. So bigger organizations already have that and already want to do more than they're able to do currently. And, you know, I think it would not take a ton of investment to be able to create more experimentation in this space. Now, I will say the one thing that that funders always have to be, you know, knowledgeable about and thoughtful about is, you know, journalism really does have walls between how we fund things and, and what the things are. And so you can't always expect the coverage is going to say exactly what you want. Like maybe you fund something that's on AI and the writer comes to the view that AI risk is overstated, you know, like that stuff can and should happen. You're, you're trying to fund journalism here. It's not advertisements. But in general, I think pointing more coverage at the right things is great. And so take global development. It does somewhat worse in traffic. It doesn't do unbelievably badly in traffic. And it can be really, really important if the right people read it. So creating a group inside an institution that focus entirely on global development coverage and just don't need to worry about traffic is good for everybody. It's good coverage for the, from the institution's point of view. It's good for the world. We just It shouldn't be the case that everything needs to support itself on, on advertising and scale. You had a particular vision for Vox in the early days. Are there any parts of that vision that kind of haven't yet eventuated, but is something that a listener could potentially work on and, and, and might, might succeed at creating? I don't know if you'll succeed at creating it. There's a very core part of that vision that didn't work. So when we launched Vox, the way we thought about it, and this was very, very dear to my heart, was we thought about explanatory not as an approach to all products, but as actually a core product. The idea was that you would have these continuously updated topic guides, these resources that so, you know, as like Sarah Cliff is covering the Affordable Care Act and everything that changes with it, she's basically continuously updating what's like, I don't want to call it a Wikipedia article because it'd be written by Sarah, by Sarah fucking Cliff, <laughs> but, um, but like the single best guide to the underlying topic anywhere. And I, I, I think a really big problem in journalism is that the audience is often coming into stories midstream. So you're coming in and, you know, there's all this jargon you don't understand. There are players whose role you don't know. You know, what you need is really good topic information, but it's hard to find. I mean, Wikipedia is okay. And it's like, I mean, as an institution, extraordinary, but for any individual thing can often be disappointing. And so I had really, like, we had this whole product called Card Stacks and they're different. Some of them really worked. I mean, we had an ISIS card stack that got tens of millions of, of views. It was just a great product by Zach Beecham. There are a lot of issues with it. One, it's unbelievably resource intensive. But two, the big thing that happened is that we launched Vox before the great platform fracturing. So before Facebook Instant Articles and Flipboard and Google Amp and like everybody was reading every Apple News, everybody's reading stuff not on your core platform anymore. So in many cases, the number of people reading like on your website is, you know, a half of the number of people reading it. And so things that are bespoke product innovations that then do not translate everywhere else become a really hard way to, to justify investment. 
there are a lot of things that worked at Vox. There are a lot of things that, that I didn't imagine that we did that like worked beautifully. But that was the thing that was really important to me and still to me feels like an unsolved problem in journalism. Like, let's say you don't want to know what's up with coronavirus today. You want to know about coronavirus. And not like something somebody wrote about it 20 months ago, but like updated to today. Like, how should I understand this whole thing? Like, where do I start? I think that's often something we've failed at. Yeah, for me, that is Wikipedia. I've, I've found that very often if there's like a current event or something going on, a, a person, whatever, it's much better just to look it up on Wikipedia. And then just like, I mean, during the during the coronavirus pandemic, I literally was like just like constantly reading the coronavirus uh, or COVID-19 Wikipedia entry. And that was much better than trying to track things through the newspaper. So I wonder if there's an opportunity to try to like build that out within Wikipedia. And that could be a way to get explainers. And I yeah. guess to some extent, Wikipedia could I mean, be that like might a... Be. Maybe you want to fund people to be to be helping with Wikipedia, but I think there should be competition to Wikipedia. Not because I want to take down yeah. Wikipedia. I love Wikipedia. It's an extraordinary <laughs> thing. It's like one of the great marvels of the internet age. I'm just saying that it shouldn't be your only option. But, and by the way, some people have done this well. Like one I, I want to call out here, I think also on coronavirus, our world and data's basically like primers are extraordinary. They don't do that on every issue, but but you see how effective that's been on that particular issue. So, you know, this is a big project. You need a lot of money to do it well, given the range of things you might want to do, because you don't just want to do – it's very easy to talk about like the 10 biggest issues – but there's a lot of things to our whole conversation here we're covering that are not the 10 biggest issues. And so then you really get into to resource constraints. But but yeah, that's something that I still care about. I still don't quite understand the model for like, you know, and I still feel is unsolved. Again, with the exception of the, the great work Wikipedia does. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say on our world and data? I, I'm, I'm hoping to get Max Rosa or someone else from there on the, on the show at some point because their traffic is unbelievable. I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head and maybe, maybe they're not public, but they're getting a lot of traffic on a really quite small budget. And obviously they're providing like fantastic information to people, like potentially really helping them to, to understand the world. So I see that as a huge success in journalism of a, of a kind. Yeah, I think they're fantastic. Um, I don't have a ton more to say, except that I really appreciate what they've done and they should come on 80,000 hours. <laughs> Um, how many hours of news do you think a typical person should consume uh, each week? Ooh, that's interesting. I don't know. It depends who you are and what you're doing. And also depends if you enjoy consuming news or not. I think the bigger question actually is like for a, a given number of hours of news, how are you consuming it? A lot of people, I think, think they are consuming news and what they're consuming is political entertainment. And that's yeah. different. That's that's what I'm doing a lot of the time. <laughs> right. I'm like, you know, yeah. there's some noise in the signal of Twitter but if the way you get your political news is Twitter, I would say you're not really getting news at a at a depth that maybe you think you are, right? It's a feeling of knowing everything, but what you know is a conversation, not the depth behind the conversation. And I can tell you because I know a lot about Twitter analytics, most people don't click through the links. Like there are a <laughs> lot of links on Twitter. There's not yeah. a lot of readership through links on Twitter. So that's one thing. I think it's really important for people to try to consume some local news. You know, your diet of information should not be all national and international. If it's so heavily weighted there that you basically don't know the name of, let's say you're in America, your state senator and your your state, you know, your your representative, you you need to make sure you're reading something local. So you're developing that set of ideas, political identity. People have a lot more power and effect on their local politics. So I think that's really important. I don't think people need to consume more news than they want to consume. But I think a lot of people are consuming news in a inefficient, polarizing, and kind of like addicting way that makes us all feel bad. And look, I'm part of this system too. I talk about this a lot in my book, but I'll say just for Twitter, I have gone back and forth for years on what my relationship to Twitter should be. So I have a very big Twitter audience. Um, I have, I think like 2.7 million people there. Probably they're all bots. <laughs> but 
but it's a very uh, like I can go to Twitter and I can write a thread in five minutes and it will get, you know, thousands of retweets and I can look on the law analytics and like 100,000 people saw this and and it feels kind of great. And also, I don't think it's a good ecosystem. I think that most people on there a lot feel agitated and upset. I think it, it pulls bad behavior out of people. So for a long time, I basically stopped tweeting except for out articles, but I also felt that I wasn't like in this conversation. My basic view on things right now is that the news and like the conversation, capital C, has migrated to not great platforms. And there's not really great answers for individuals about what to do about it. But if you're an individual consuming the news, I don't think you necessarily need to be there. And, and you know, you'll, you'll get more out of reading, you know, I actually really like reading some of the news apps. So if you look at my phone, I have Vox's homepage, like saved as a tile. I have the New York Times app and I have the New Yorker app. And I really like the three of those. And, you know, I find actually apps to be a really nice reading experience, although Vox doesn't have an app, but has a nice responsive website. And so that's how I do a lot of my consumption. And then, of course, I have the LA Times app, which is where I get a lot of my California news. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting point you made about how people should potentially look at state and state and local news more. I suppose people often won't follow it because they think, well, it's not as important as the issues that are, that are happening nationally. But I guess because everyone has piled in so hard to the national stuff, in fact, these local things are so neglected that like one person who takes a great interest in them, the one person who like knows a ton about this, this local issue at the council can potentially have much more influence over that than they could over anything nationally. And so even if the stakes are a hell of a lot smaller, maybe the expected value is, is, is higher just because you're, you're doing something that, that is being inappropriately neglected by others. Yeah, there's a book by a political scientist named Etan Hirsch. And I don't remember, I don't think the book is actually called, I think it's called Politics is for Power. But the core idea of the book is political hobbyism. And his idea is that there's a huge difference that most people don't intuitively feel between engaging in politics as a practice of power, right? Trying to attain or understand power to change outcomes and like just cheering on your team. And a lot of people who think they're politically involved, they're not. They're, they're what he calls hobbyists. They're there for the entertainment. I have some issues with sort of where Hirsch has gone from here. I think he's gone in a way that's a little bit too dismissive of some of the way people do their decision making and, 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 and structure this. But, but it's a good provocation for people. And one of the things about local politics is I think local politics often connects you to power. Like this question of why are things happening? What can I do about it? Whereas like getting mad about Donald Trump and Russia, I mean, there's good reason to be mad about Donald Trump and Russia. I'm not one of the people who think that was a, a story that shouldn't have been heavily covered. But it also wasn't something that you were going to do anything about. You know, yeah. like if you weren't on Robert Mueller's team and you already knew you were voting against <laughs> Donald Trump, like you had no real effect in that story. I understand why you want to be informed about the world. But if all of your stuff is like that, I think it's worth asking. You know, and you get a very different view of politics being engaged in your local area. So obviously I'm a, I covered national politics in America, and that connects me to the sort of big Republican-Democrat cleavages. And I think the Republican Party in recent years, particularly but not only in the Trump era, has like gone off the rails in a really irresponsible, scary way. And so when I cover national politics, like the sins of the Republican Party are very foremost in my mind. But one reason I think it's very actually healthy to, to watch local politics, like I live in California, it's a very blue state. I live in San Francisco, it's a blue part of a very blue state. And there are real failures of, of not just governance here, but more than there are failures of governance, because I actually think a lot of the leading California politicians ha have a good angle on things. 
there's a lot of failures of kind of actual progressive on the ground action and decision making. I just read a piece for the Times about, you know, this problem of of what I call sort of symbolic liberalism and operational conservatism in, in California, where, you know, people have like a Black Lives Matter, no human being is a legal sign in their yards. And then they're part of a community that was single family zoning that is organizing against any kind of affordable housing development. And the average house costs nine hundred and twenty two thousand dollars. That's not progressive in my view. Like that's actually a really bad way of doing it. But one thing that it, it's it's nice it's sort of restraining thing for me to keep an eye on what's happening around me, both because I can be hopefully influential in it in, in, in certain ways, but also because there are different problems in different places, different problems in different constellations of power. My views about the problems of like the national political collision are different actually than my views about the problems in California. And it's nice. It's like a, I think it's a good habit of mine to make sure you're not overly bought into just one cleavage. Yeah, I spend a lot of time consuming news, but I do think probably on reflection, it's a fairly poor use of my time because just so often I'm reading things like, I mean, I'm not on the fence about, well, I can't vote in US elections, but even if I could, I'm not on the fence about whether to vote for Trump or not. So it's not really, most of this stuff isn't news that I can use. And I'm kind of honest about the fact that I'm reading a lot of this stuff either as kind of like disaster porn or because uh, I just like find it really interesting as a kind of entertainment blood sport sort of thing. I find it very hard to break that addiction. I know some people who basically don't consume news almost at all. And I think good for them by and large, because it helps them to preserve their attention to do other really useful things. Yes, maybe, maybe they lose out here and there. But in general, I suspect that it allows them to to accomplish more good rather than less. I think that's right. I, I, I talk in my book about this story that was in the New York Times a couple of years ago. It's called that I think it's called the man who knew too little. It's about this guy. And there's like a big internet hate over this. But it's about this guy. He was a former Nike executive. And when Donald Trump got elected, he moved to some rural area. And he basically not just stopped consuming news. I don't mean he just stopped reading the news. He wouldn't let anybody tell him about anything. He would drop friends if they tried to talk to him about the news. He would only go to the coffee shop really early and they knew not to let him see the paper. Like he actually tried to create a bubble for himself where he 100% wouldn't know what is going on. And there was like a big internet hate on this guy. And I, I, I get it, obviously. But like, yeah, real nice for you, former Nike executive, well-off white guy who's decided you don't need to know anything happening. But at the end of this piece, which is by Sam Dolnick, it talks about how what he was spending all of his time on doing and his money on doing was trying to restore, I think it was a wetland right near his house, right? So he's like trying to like take this, you know, area, I think there had been mining there or something and make it into a kind of nature preserve that people could come and enjoy. And like one of my provocations in the book is, are you really doing so much better of a job making things better yeah. for people than that guy, right? Like, are you yeah. like getting mad and sending mean tweets to at real Donald Trump or back when you could do that, I guess. Like, are you having a better effect than him? And my point is not that you should create a new, uh, like a, a no news bubble for yourself, but, but that we should be tough on ourselves about what kind of political engagement do we have? Or are we really trying to change things? And if we're not like, is that what we intended? It's fine. If you want to say, I don't like sports, I like politics. Like, I'm not going to tell you that's a, you're allowed to do that. That's no problem. But if what you're saying to yourself is, I care about making things better for the global poor or I care about climate change. Are you actually – do you care about those things or is that the like the rationalization for why you like your political sports teams? Yeah. Let's move on and talk about effective altruism and uh, long-termism. What is your biggest critique of the EA community or 80,000 hours advice if you, if you have any? I think there are probably a couple that I would offer. And I say this again, I think people can tell that I like this world and, and engage yeah. with it. And, and so I say this, you know, with, with love, not with um, bitterness. And you ask me. <laughs> um, yeah. So a couple of things. One, I think that in sort of direct EA, 
there is a little bit too much focus on what is measurable. And there are a lot of things that are simply hard to measure, and that doesn't mean they're not important. And then simultaneously, because there's a real focus on what is measurable, I often see people trying to measure the unmeasurable in a way that is, a, like to me, a very false sense of precision. So I really like Toby Ord, for instance. I had him on my show when he brought out his book. I appreciate that he's got that table in there of his best guesses on how likely things that he has no actual data on how likely they are are to happen. I think there's something disciplining to that, but I think it's really important to notice too that there can also be something deceptive in your own thinking to that. Like it's all well and good to say I'm only putting one in 30 down here because I want to tell you like in a clear way what my chances are. But I can tell you, like the way a lot of people read that is like when a like an important philosopher gives you a table with numbers, it looks a lot more convincing than when he says, like, I think there's a low but real chance of this happening. And so I think that both being unwilling to 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 deal with the unmeasurable, but then also trying to create false precision around the unmeasurable can can be bad habits. And then the other thing, it's probably a little bit related, but it's not the same. And this is sort of EA rationality. I think it is very easy to tip into embracing an aesthetic of rationality that is not itself actually rational and it closes you off from other forms of knowing. Like among other things, I think there's an incredible, incredible, incredible resistance to information that comes in a high feelings way. And I am saying this purposefully like a robot to you, totally, but, yeah. but people really want you to perform like a cold, like as if you're a human computer. And if somebody comes and they're like yelling and they're upset and they're crying, you know, or whatever, like the online equivalents are, there can be a real like, oh, ho, 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 ho. Like you're not having a rational argument with me. Not being able to hear people who are upset and not being able to hear people who haven't been trained in the particular style of argumentation that you favor is a way of missing super important information about the world. And like I say this as somebody who is very good at rational argumentation, quite enjoys having it, is well-trained in it, I'm a professional arguer, have had you know my share of debates. You can really miss things if you can't hear information and if you can't hear signal that doesn't come to you wrapped in the stylistic and cultural packaging that you're you're used to. And one of my big concerns with the rationality community is that they mistake like a, a kind of, again, like an aesthetic, a patina of rationality for actually being rational. And a lot of actually being rational is understanding how little you know and how limited your own perspective is. I always love Tyler Cowen once on my podcast said like the rationalists should call themselves the irrationalists. Um, <laughs> I do, by the way, I like these folks. I read Scott Alexander, you know, like yeah. uh, I've, I've known Julie Gale for a long time. Like I like this world and think there's a lot of value in the way they argue, but I also think sometimes they're too closed off to counter argument that comes in these ways. So those are my, those are my critiques. Effective actors love self-critique. Like always the most popular things on the, on the effective altruism forum are people like criticizing, I don't know, our advice, the ways we do things wrong. It's like, yeah, it's, it's actually an interesting kind of fetish that I think has developed. And there's also a way it can be dangerous because of course it feels so satisfying to talk about how bad you are to flagellate yourself. I, w I wonder whether sometimes it can be like, it makes you feel redeemed somehow for your mistakes or I can't be being up myself if I'm criticizing myself. But yeah, so anyway, pe people love it. So if you, if you could think of any more, please. My, please my read of those threads and yeah. I've seen some of them is again, a little bit to what I was saying. There's a beloved nature of critique that is recursive to itself, like critique that yeah. is like, I am the more rational. I'll say <laughs> one last one. Um, I think there's a very heavy emphasis on cognitive bias in this community, and the best people in it do all that reading and understand the limits of our cognition and become much more humble about their thinking. And the like, the people who I think really go awry get this feeling of like, 
well, I know everything about cognitive bias now. And so my thinking is so much more elevated. And like I often will watch these people and like nobody becomes more self-deluded than that. I'll note there's a, a related thing in, in politics where – and this is like endlessly proven out now – People with the highest levels of political information tend to exhibit the highest levels of partisan self-deception. This is a very hard line to walk, but there is nothing more dangerous than thinking you know a lot and nothing more dangerous particularly than thinking you know a lot about how you think. Like you really need a lot of humility. And so at the best, I think the rationality community imposes humility on itself. And at the worst, there's a performance of imposing humility. There's a way of not actually having humility, right? That is a way of – you know, I've known forever, you know, at Wonk Blog and other things, things seem more convincing if you put them in chart form. Like they just look more official. I appreciate, you know, Scott and others will sometimes put like epistemic, you know, status, like 60% on the top of like 5,000 words <laughs> of super aggressive argumentation. But like, is the effect of that epistemic status to make people like, oh, I should be careful with this? Or is it like this person super rational and self-critical? And actually now I super, I, I believe him totally. I, and I'm not picking on Scott here. A lot of people do this. Larry Summers, like, did this all the time. He was <laughs> he was known in the administration for he would constantly, when people were saying something, be like, well, what probability do you put on that? And so people are just pulling like 20%, 30%, 70% probabilities out of thin air. That makes things sound more convincing, but I always think at the danger of making people – of actually it having the reverse effect it should. Sometimes the language of probability – reads to folks like, well, you can really trust this person. And so instead of being skeptical, you're less skeptical. So those are just pitfalls that, that I notice and it's worth watching out for as I have to do in myself. Yeah. A tricky thing with any large group of people is that uh, they tend to be potentially very different from one another. So there's definitely some people for whom these these critiques are relevant. And there's people who are almost like the, the exact opposite. It's just what happens Absolutely. when you have thousands and tens of thousands Absolutely. of people. It is very interesting that I feel like the effective altruism community focuses on like extremely measurable things and then completely unmeasurable things. And like, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of surprising that there aren't more things that are in the middle because you think that most things would be kind of kind of measurable. Uh, and I wonder this whether is there's a little some bit what I was saying that, why. that I think it's interesting. There's like less focus on 20 years from now in AI and jobs than I would think there is in this community. <laughs> yeah, I think that it has actually changed. There's been kind of this merger in the last couple of years between the people who are concerned about long-term stuff in AI and the immediate-term stuff in AI because it seems like they've come up with research agendas that have just turned out to be like two sides of the same thing. It's really quite interesting. Yeah, I've done an interview with uh, Brian Christian who wrote the, the Alignment Problem, which kind of describes this phenomenon of how, like, <laughs> it's almost funny, it's almost hard for me to remember five years ago how these two camps seem to be really at odds with one another, and now they just all seem to be singing from the same song sheet. So, so that seems like progress to me anyway. I need to read that book. It's been like I, I've it's been recommended to me by everybody I trust. And <laughs> I just like I, yeah. I need to read the alignment problem. Yeah, just on on the bias thing that you uh, that you mentioned earlier. I think I would go further in your in your actual critique of the or kind of the bias literature and people reading about cognitive biases. I think that it's almost not useful at all. Because, well, to begin with, like, obviously, it's this kind of psychology research that often just doesn't replicate. So I suspect that many of these effects, in fact, will turn out in, you know, in 10, 20 years time, we won't think that they're real. But even among those that do exist, the, the model that people have in their heads with biases is like, I am like mostly thinking right, but then occasionally I'll have like a bias in a specific situation. And then I will learn to catalog all of those. And then when, I, when I'm having one of those, I'll, I'll correct from this like thing because now I'm going to be like plus 20, 10% and then I'll downgrade at 10% and I'll have the right answer. But the reality is you're just swimming in like these potential errors or like you're just using all of these processes that are very imprecise all the time. And you get rid of one bias and there's just going to be another. Like it's not that you have one bias at a particular point in time that you can access. It's like there's 20 things going on at any point in time and getting rid of any one of them doesn't really help all, the, all that much. And I think you do just end up with this illusion that you're thinking better than other people. I, I think that it's very important to try to be more rational and try to like have better ways of reaching the right answer. But I think trying to do this correction for biases is mostly a poor use of people's effort. 
Yeah, and, and mostly what it ends up with with people is correcting for other people's biases. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Like in, in practice, everybody's like, I really understand that I can be thinking this way. But what I'm really seeing with you right now is a lot of motivated reasoning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's true, right? Like, I mean, it's usually true. And, you know, I've, I've always yeah. said on some of this research, I have a chapter of my book. It's about some of the stuff in the political context. And I say that, you know, this research is like staring into the abyss. The more you get into it, the more you realize there is no escape. And even the ways you would escape tend to make you more vulnerable to, to, to certain kinds of looking at this. And yet also somehow we have to operate in a world where some things are, are true, you know, or where we at least are willing to say some things are true. You know, there is no doubt that I have a lot of political biases that inform my writing. And also to some point, I need to be willing to say, I think the way that Republican politicians in Texas responded to the the, the freeze was really bad. And, yeah, you yeah. know, am I biased in saying that? Yes. Am I pretty confident? of the empirical evidence in which I'm saying that, yes, it's just hard. My lesson on this stuff for myself is like the place this literature should leave you in is a place of profound discomfort with yourself. And like, if you're not, if you, if you, if it's making you feel like real good, then you're probably not absorbing it correctly. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a more optimistic story to be told here if you look at the kind of heuristic literature, because there's all of these studies to try to find like, oh, here's how people mess up and get things wrong. But it's also extraordinary how often like people can get incredibly complicated things right very quickly and how they're, man they're managing to do these shortcuts that avoid doing very complicated analysis, but still get a pretty good enough answer very fast. I think there's, yeah, there's a whole way that we could have gone down, like, how do people think right? How do they do a really good job? And then kind of trying to celebrate that and expand that. Instead, it's like, maybe it's just easier to study ways that people get things slightly wrong in these bizarre experimental setups that probably don't generalize to the world. Um, I, I don't know. Oh, maybe it's just like more fulfilling to criticize. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly why we went down that track rather than that appreciating the ways that people are good at reasoning. Negativity bias is an important bias. Yeah, so, yeah very <laughs> great point. Particularly in other people. You mentioned the precipice by, by Toby Ord. How much have you engaged with kind of the arguments for and against long-termism? And do you have any kind of critiques of it or, or reservations? I don't think I have a critique of it, to be honest. I think that I have engaged with the arguments of long-termism, you know, to the extent of the person who's interested in those arguments. And I think that, you know, whatever small, like around the edges disagreements I have with any particular argument, which people in this community are, are very willing to hear, like I, I love talking to, to Toby, I think the general push from the long-termists is incredibly, incredibly important. We're obviously like not taking this stuff seriously enough by any means. So I don't really have a critique about I mean, I get a little – I think you can get into a kind of mathematical blackmail situation where when you start running the numbers on like the endless future potential of humanity, then like, you know – any unbelievably infinitesimal change in, in modernity, you know, like it has like such an outsized impact that like, well, it's of course worth doing overdoing anything else. I don't buy that for a bunch of different reasons, including like, I don't think we understand all that well necessarily how to have those effects. And something Dylan has written that I've also thought is quite smart is that, you know, let's say you're, you're dealing with a question between putting, you know, $5 billion into something that is like long-termist and putting $5 billion into say a child allowance you may, you know, for some set of kids, like it actually may be more helpful to be helping people be more educated and healthier now so they can then like using the better resources of 30 years from now, right? So like to the extent this stuff ends up biting, I don't even think it's always clear which direction it bites in. Knowing the long term is important. You know, maybe the best way to, to secure the long term is to secure the, the right now. But I don't want to use that as a strong critique. I think this is functionally a really correct way to think. And on a lot of these issues, we don't do nearly enough. So to give a couple of examples... 
we just need to be doing so much more on the question of synthetic biological weapons. That is just one of these ones where I don't even think you need to get into like, will we ever invent general intelligence AI? It is entirely plausible, like really, really in the near term, like plausibly now even, that people could with pretty routine ingredients, terrorists could create things that would kill billions of people. You know, and it's terrifying. I think one of the best parts of Toby's book is just the looking at some of the pandemic threats that have come up. And, you know, for instance, I think it was, it's either H1N1 or H5N1, I think it was. It's a it's a swine flu, as I remember this, with a 70% lethality rate if it gets to if it gets to humans, but it doesn't pass human to human. But then some researcher trying to study it passed it through 10 ferrets and made a version of it that could pass human to human, which caused an uproar in the, the research community, but it's just terrifying to think about. So, you know, there are a set of threats that are obvious that would really, really affect the long term, and we should take it profoundly more seriously than we do. Yeah, I've, I've done an interview with Andy Weber, who's uh, used to work in the Department of Defense, where he lays out basically what he thinks is potentially a permanent solution to this issue of synthetic biology being so risky. And he thinks it's like it's very risky today and will be worse in 10 years, which is uh, kind of using nanopore sequences to just constantly monitor new viruses and new bacteria that are circulating. And then using mRNA, having massive ability to quickly manufacture mRNA vaccines, because now we can just crack out new vaccines really quickly just based on the DNA strand. And he basically thinks that that could take these kind of bioweapons off the table, which is like a really exciting, you know, avenue of research within science and technology. And we should do it. Like, yeah. and, and obviously it's not like it wouldn't be useful to have a lot of mRNA vaccination capacity. So like, yeah. let's do it, you know? So <laughs> Just yeah, it. I really want to be, I really want to be like, I want my position understood here is not, I have some on the margins disagreements about certain ideas of long-termism. Long-termism is an incredibly, incredibly healthy, you know, intellectual force. And it's like among the things that I would like to, you know, be an ally of in the public conversation, not, not somebody trying to poke holes in it. Are there any effective altruism-ish projects that you've kind of considered doing but decided against? I don't know. I mean, no, Future Perfect was was the big one that I'm, you know, proud to have been a part of and proud that it's, you know, that they've done such an extraordinary job and I read it every day and love it and, you know, hope it continues to thrive. And then obviously like my own work, you know, to me is sort of a project of trying to make the the world a better place. Yeah. So for decades, people have been worried about the next pandemic, how bad, how bad it will be. Often those people were kind of reviewed as Cassandras or they were viewed as people who were just like always, always worried about stuff, always worried about tail risks. They're kind of quirky. Can we really trust their judgment? But they've been proven right last year. And many of those people have also at the same time been worried about other kinds of terror risks like, you know, what if we have a nuclear war with Russia by accident? Or what if we go to war with China over Taiwan, even though we didn't really plan to? Or what if AI really does go off the rails and, and cause massive problems? Has kind of the last 18 months made you reconsider whether maybe we should just be more worried about, about wacky tail risk scenarios? Maybe the world's more variable and dangerous than we think? Yes and no. Let me frame differently what I think the, the epistemological failures were here. So everything you're saying is true. But I would say even a lot of the people who miss this believed all that abstractly. And so I've been thinking a lot about media failures around coronavirus. And so, you know, like Advox, for instance, I personally did a long video with Bill Gates about the next pandemic, <laughs> the yeah. next like respiratory <laughs> pandemic, which got millions of views years ago. Then we did a Netflix episode on pandemics. And we did this Ron Klain thing on pandemics. I think actually very few places had done like as much shaking, you know, the, the trees being like, listen, a pandemic is a serious threat. And at the same time, while we had some early coverage of this, it was good and some that was, you know, not as perceptive. We were not able to see immediately like this was going to be the one. And I've been thinking a lot about how do you not make that mistake? And one of the difficult things here was even coming from a view that pandemics are a gigantic threat 
And one of them is likely to kill millions and millions of people, you know, within the next 10 or 20 years. When this one started up, the way journalism is optimized to work, you call a bunch of experts and say what they tell you. And the public health community was playing this down for a long time. You know, we were hearing like, oh, worry more about the flu and, you know, wash your hands and, you know, oh, this could be a problem, but there's not going to be human to human transmission. And it's all well and good to say, obviously, people got that one wrong. But like, what is what is the heuristic you would use to overrule the experts in a case like this in the future? Like, what would I tell a young journalist, you know, such that in the many, many, many things we look at where every year as a journalist, you deal with a lot of things that could become an unbelievable crisis, like the number of things that might become the next financial crisis that I get pitched on in three months <laughs> is big. And like, yeah. I never quite know, right? They're all convincing arguments. Like I've spent some time one looking day, into One of them the- will be right. And one of them, and some of them have been right, right? But a lot of them, way more of them have been wrong. And so, by the way, have a number of possible pandemic threats. And, you know, there's like a big theory of a food supply crisis about eight months ago now that didn't pan out in that way, at least. And so it's really hard. Um, So one is obviously like, I think you want to listen to people who've had really good and have demonstrated and shown really good habits of thinking here. So I've done, I just did a podcast with Zanab Tufechi about how she thinks, right? And she is somebody with a track record, I think, of getting a lot of big things right over an extended period of time. Some of the people you talk about, I, I should note, and this is one issue, do not get a lot of things right. They got one big thing right or a couple of big things right. And they also get a lot of big things wrong constantly. And so as a journalist, it's hard to know what to do with that. We're like journalism, the way I would put it, it's optimized to get 19 out of 20 things right. But the time it's going to fail is going to be really bad because it's going to be when all the experts are failing too. And then there are people who they're optimized to get, you know, three or four or five out of 20 things, like really unusual things, right? And it's okay if they get a bunch of things wrong. That's not a knock on them. It's actually a kind of thinking we need. It's a very different incentive structure, but it's not always clear like what to do with somebody who is right about this, but also like wrong about a bunch of other things. I don't mean to say like, I hope this doesn't come off as defensive. It's something I'm wrestling with a lot because I think about it in terms of what advice would I give journalists to use for the future? So I think there's some people you should come out of this having a higher trust in like Zainab. I think in general, just like one generalized thing to feel is if everybody is saying and you also believe something is going to go wrong, believe it. Don't just keep saying it, like really believe it in your bones. So something I've been thinking about a lot recently is like everybody tells me antibiotic resistance is a terrible problem that is looming, you know, in human civilization. And I would tell you if you asked me, antibiotic resistance is a terrible problem looming for human civivilization. But do I believe it? Right? Am I actually acting like I believe it? Like, am I, su- am I super yeah. on the alert for any information that that problem is coming up? You know, similar to the the synthetic biological weapon conversation we just had has the same qualities to it. And then on the other hand, one of the tricky things is if I if I just move up my just constant level of alarm about all looming threats and keep writing columns about how you need to be super scared about things, are people going to tune me out? It's a it's yeah. a genuinely tricky space. One thing I wonder is, it seems like the journalist doing pandemics at the New York Times should ideally be like a world expert in pandemics who can form their own view about whether the experts are getting this right and can do research and figure things out rather than just a dilettante who has to go to a press conference with some public health people and then kind of writes down what they say, but it doesn't feel in a position to, to question them. No, a like, lot of the, that's, that's no? very unfair. A lot okay. of these people at high levels really are excellent at these issues and really did do a lot of research. I mean, you know, Julia Blues at Vox had covered pandemics for years. She had a great piece very early in this. It was like, it was called something like eight ways a coronavirus could play out. And there were four about how it could become like a global pandemic and four about how not. It was great probabilistic coverage. I really want to push on this. Like journalists who are very expert in some topics, and I count myself in certain topics as one of them, 
you still talk to a lot of experts to try to inform yourself because it's a lot to trust yourself on. That's also not how, that's not the, it's one thing to be a columnist and be like, I got some views on stuff. But if you're, you know, writing in the news section of the New York Times, you can know a lot, but you have to like, as a good Bayesian to maybe put this in, in, in yeah. more of your language, <laughs> like you have down. to put some weight on what, you know, all these other people who, you know, do this research themselves tell you totally. like that's a, that's a tough space. Yeah, I didn't want to suggest that all journalists were in that situation. Like, I think Julia is an example of someone who has more subject expertise and for that reason was able to do better coverage. My, my impression generally is, is that the people who knew more about the field going in produced better coverage and like, got the right answers sooner than people who were just going in, going in afresh. But uh, I yeah, think yes and no. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, okay. people like I'll give a non-journalistic example, but people have, I think, correctly noted, like some of the people you're talking about as being prescient were on this faster and better than Fauci was. They didn't have more, and, and nor did a lot of people. But but I do think there's like an interesting question here. There were people who had a lot of knowledge who got this fast, and people who had a lot of knowledge who got this slow. And in some ways, like the question was not even the knowledge. In some ways, the question was, how do you understand the information coming out of China, for instance? You know, and how do you weight what they're telling you? And you know, what do you think is true about you know preparedness? And I just think it's complicated. I don't want to uh, absolve anybody. I just want to say, like like my only point is that. Like, I think there are real failures we need to learn from here in journalism, like, you know, like is true whenever we get something really big wrong. This is just one of the places where I've had a lot of trouble thinking of what would be the rule I'd give for a young reporter, somebody who's like very senior in the field and super experienced. That's one thing, like that's a different set of issues. But like, how do we teach the next generation of journalists not to miss something again? But when that thing is being, it's just hard. (laughs) It's just a tricky question as an editor. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're up on time. For people who are interested in this, I can really recommend the interview that you did with Zainab. I thought it was fantastic. And I'm, I'm hoping to get her on the show as soon as possible. Yeah, just one final question is, you're like insanely productive, constantly producing content, articles, podcasts, tweets. How are you managing to do that while also having kind of a, a young child is 18 months old? Like, it seems like it would be a very difficult thing to, to balance all of the things that you're trying to accomplish. Well, my my subjective experience of myself is that I'm always getting a lot less done and feeling more harried and behind than I'd like to. So, so I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't. Sometimes I get this question and I'm glad I look very productive to others. And sometimes I feel (laughs) um, not as productive to myself. I I, I think the thing that I am pretty good at is I have a I have a really, really rapid cycle from I want to do something to I'm executing on it. Like I don't spend a lot of time like in meta analysis. I don't get in my own way that much. I'm a pretty fast writer. And then the other thing is I'm pretty focused. You were talking about reading the news. I actually read a lot less news than people might think at least general news. I have the things I am working on and I read really intensively in them. And then I let a lot of other things go by. I like, I let a lot of other balls go by. And that means there are things that are, everybody else is talking about that I don't know about, but it's helpful. And it's, you know, I really try to say to myself, like every week work-wise, I need to do one excellent column and two excellent podcasts and everything needs to be oriented towards that happening. And then tweets and everything else, like that's extra. Most of it is distraction. But if I'm focused, I can do that. And if I'm not focused, I can't. And so that's where that's where the rubber hits the road. But yeah, you know, I will say there's no doubt that having a young child, you know, is wonderful in a bazillion ways. And I certainly wouldn't trade it to be a little bit more productive, but it does change the way you work, you know, and and really does force decisions you didn't have to make before when you could, you know, just courting your time out in all directions. My guest today has been Ezra Klein. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Ezra. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you want to hear more about ways to align journalism and doing good, 
I'd recommend heading to the regular 80,000 Hours podcast feed and checking out our episode with Kelsey Piper, a staff writer for Future Perfect, a section on Vox's website that's focused on effective altruist themes. That's episode 53, Kelsey Piper on the room for important advocacy within journalism. And for other related conversations, you could also check out episode 88, Tristan Harris on the need to change the incentives of social media companies. Episode 59, Cass Sunstein on how social change happens and why it's often abrupt and unpredictable. Episode 57, Tom Khalil on how to do the most good in government. And finally, episode 51, Martin Gurry on the revolt of the public and crisis of authority in the information age. You can find those on our main podcast feed, which you can find by typing 80,000 hours into whatever podcasting app you prefer. All right. I hope you'll stick around for the next episode we've got in store for you.